Welcome to Amazing Horse Country. And thank you for tuning in to the Amazing Horse Country podcast. I'm Scott Phillips. The night sky was covered with dark clouds, storm clouds, and menacing ones at that. A trickle of moonlight filtered through and barely provided enough light to illuminate the trail in front of us. Really, it was just sufficient to see the trees on the other side of the trail and prevent us from wandering off into the bush. The stillness of the forest was interrupted by a sinister hiss that was growing in volume. Wind, the breeze, the storm reaching out to touch leaves and branches and chill the air around us. I sat anxiously on my gelding, tie. This wasn't an ordinary storm, and this was far from my first thunderstorm on horseback in the mountains. A low rumble that began just as a sensation grew to permeate the air around us. The forest floor beneath us seemed to shake in a slowly increasing intensity. Ty froze, suddenly unsure if he should be taking another step on what he likely figured was uncertain footing. Thunder? I didn't think so. It couldn't be. There was no lightning, no loud crack. If I could have compared it to anything, it would have been an earthquake. But it wasn't the ground that was shaking. It was the air around us. What was a dark night suddenly became darker. I looked up, expecting to see the thunderclouds closing in on us. But what I saw, I'll never forget. It wasn't a cloud. A large dark mass was moving above the trees, only a few hundred feet in the air. It was too dark to see any features on it. I have a pilot's license, and I knew this was no airplane. That only left one other option an option I didn't want to admit. Staring upward, Ty now shivering in fear, but making no move to leave me, I saw the gaps between the towering clouds cut off by the object as it gradually overtook and blotted out the heavens. The thing was not moving fast. Like a huge ship in the ocean, its mass allowing it to move only a few knots, but its momentum giving it the power to displace tons of water. And that's what it looked like this thing was doing, displacing the sky. We were minuscule in proportion to the object that I now saw was roughly rectangular in shape. There was no way of knowing how high it was, but it was at least as wide as a football field in length. I look off to my right and I couldn't even guess, like being parked at a railway crossing and the cars just kept coming and coming. It didn't seem to have an end. I methodically dismounted. I felt oddly comfortable though, like a hidden observer, but a sixth sense had me thinking that if we moved, we'd be noticed. But by what? I had no idea. Ty had grown more anxious, now pawing at the ground. I took the rein and tried to comfort him, stroking his neck and whispering quietly to him. I had to give this horse credit, but it was all too much for him. Suddenly he reared and let out a loud whinny. I tried to change his focus, taking the reins and leading him off into the trees, into the blackness. It was then that I noticed a change in the sound. Like the machine had changed gears, 
and instead of being in four-wheel drive, it was now in neutral, idling, and it had stopped. I realized I'd been holding my breath, and very, very slowly, I let it out and drew another. Had we been noticed? Had Ty's panic drawn its attention? Soon, my questions were answered, and I find it hard, even to this day, to explain what happened next. Something emerged from the object. A churning black mass began moving right up flush against the object's surface, like black water going down a toilet, but turning much slower. I watched in horror as it rapidly extended downward, like a funnel of a tornado. It writhed as if it were stretching after a long rest. The rotating black spout dropped down and moved among the trees on the other side of the trail, seeking something, seeking us. I remained frozen, one hand clutching Ty's mane and caressing his neck, urging him to stay silent and motionless. But it was all in vain. The tip of the black swirling stalk popped up off the ground, flexing like an elbow, and at the end of it was a huge eye, or at least it looked like an eye to me, staring right at me. And that is the last thing I remember before I awoke. Before I even opened my eyes, I became aware of two things. One, I was lying on the ground, but it was soft, unlike the somewhat crunchy forest floor I'd been riding in. And two, it smelled like a sickly sweet rainforest. The sickly part of the smell was bitter, and I could almost feel it on my tongue, like the air was pasty. I slowly opened my eyes. I was in the forest, and Ty was lying next to me. He was asleep. His head was resting on the ground, mouth agape and breathing deeply, like a contented horse at rest. But something was missing. My saddle, my tack, they were gone. Bridle, saddlebags, everything. I glanced around to see if they were close by, and I felt a chill go through my body as I took in the view. This was not my forest. A line from the Wizard of Oz popped into my head. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. I stood up, my legs aching. I must have been asleep for a long time. It was still night, or at least night wherever we were. I looked up, the sky was purple, and there were two moons. Much closer to us than the moon I knew. What the heck had happened? Where were we? A whacking noise and a low moan brought my attention back to the ground. The sounds came from the other side of a grove of what appeared to be palm trees, but with large yellow protrusions from the trunks that swayed gently like large hair, like a breeze was caressing them, or a sea creature's tendrils being teased by the motion of the water. But there was no breeze. It was calm. Ty still hadn't moved nor made any sign of waking. I crept cautiously toward the source of the odd noises as another whack and another moan sounded through the trees. A few steps further, oddly aware that the ground beneath me was soft, squishy, but, but not wet, and I had a clear view. Tall creatures surrounded a rock, a round rock, about maybe five feet in circumference and three feet off the ground. 
these creatures had skinny legs with at least three joints that I could see. When they moved, every single joint flexed, like springs being compressed. They could probably jump really high if they wanted. And then the creepy part. Above those legs was a short squat torso and no head. I think now their torso was their head. Their body looked like the body part of a spider. Round, somewhat flat, gray in color, and covered with many short spiky whisker looking things. They had three eyes arranged in the center of their face in a semi-triangle pattern. Those eyes were the only feature in their face, or at least the only one I could see. Without warning, one of the creatures lifted up one of its legs. Or were they arms? And I saw what looked like a mallet in its clutches. Whatever it was looked heavy. Heavy enough to cause a loud moan to escape the creature stretched out on the stone when it was viciously struck. The creature on the stone was much smaller than the rest. A baby! And they were beating it to death! I was appalled! I was outraged! How could a race intelligent enough to transport me and my horse tie to another planet be capable of such hideous actions? And then, as if it was his or her turn, the next creature in the circle raised a mallet and struck the infant again. Another moan escaped it. It must have been so painful. Why did it deserve such treatment? The eyes on the little alien creature turned toward me and it looked like it was pleading. Help me. Fear aside, I ran towards it. If I was going to lose my life on some creepy alien planet where the air tasted like bitter dirt, at least I'd die helping another critter. My run lasted only two strides before I pancaked into what I thought was a glass wall. But there was no wall. A force field? I couldn't see a thing. No shimmering apparition like in the sci-fi movies. Just an invisible wall. But piling face first into that unseen structure had brought the focus of the group. In unison, all the creatures turned and looked at me. The rage and shock on my face must have been undisguisable. One of the creatures slowly shook its head at me, as if saying, no, you've got it wrong. And that was all the communication I was allotted in that quick transaction. They turned back to their task, as another creature raised its mallet. Whack! Powerless, I could do nothing but watch. The little creature on the stone was growing though, becoming more like the others, gaining strength. With each pounding of the instruments they were using, the creature came more to life. They were making another one of themselves. They were not hurting it at all but rather providing it what it seemed to need in order to become one of them. Like a birthing ceremony, a celebration of creation, of life. I had been wrong, completely wrong. Because without knowing anything about these creatures and their culture, the only thing I had to explain what I was seeing was my own human experience, which didn't even come close. The ceremony was complete. The newly made creature rose from the stone and the whole group bounced on their flexing legs, 
It was indeed a celebration. Suddenly, I felt tired. So tired I fell to my knees as the blackness enveloped me. Again, I woke up in the forest, but this time, my forest. I was on my back with my face to the night sky. A clear night sky. Well, not totally clear. Ty's face blocked out most of it because his nose was only inches away from mine. He was looking down at me as if saying, You're usually on my back. Did you get really mixed up? Silly humans. I rolled over onto my knees and got up. It must have been a dream. An exceptionally vivid dream. A nightmare. I put a foot in the stirrup and swung a leg over Ty. I expected to think the whole thing through as we continued our journey. But wait, wait, what, what the heck was that? Something squished as I put my foot in the right stirrup. I tentatively reached down to grab whatever it was. It was long, and it was yellow. Soft to the touch, and light as a feather. It was one of the leaves off those tree things in my dream. Or was it a dream? At that moment, I swore I'd never tell another soul about what happened that night. Hey everybody, it's Psychology 101 time. Have you ever heard of the false consensus effect? This is a fun one because we can all relate to this. Let me first pose a question. How do we make sense of the world around us? It's an interesting question and you might never have thought about it. Let's have some fun putting this into context. Suppose you were out trail riding on a pleasant evening, and you were abducted by aliens. They transport you to their home planet. While you're there, you observe cultures and customs that are nothing like you've ever seen before. You have no idea what is going on, or why anyone is doing what they do. How are you going to begin making sense of all that? Well, this is how it works. Your brain will want to make order of what you see. Your understanding of something you are not familiar with starts by using information that you already have. Without consciously thinking about it, you will start out with this premise, that your opinions, your beliefs, your preferences, your values, and your habits are all normal and typical. From that, you will start making comparisons and assessments you will seek similarities between what you are observing and your own life. You will make judgments based on your morals. And you will make a ton of assumptions. And you know what they say about assumptions. Well, this is a known phenomenon, and it's called the false consensus effect. In essence, it is the belief that everyone thinks the same way you do. This effect is exacerbated when you're in a group of people that really do share common values or beliefs. You'll find that many of your friends are friends because of that. You agree on many things. When other people think like you do, 
that serves to validate or justify your own beliefs. For example, you could be doing something with a horse that you might not consider ethically correct. But if you hang out with a bunch of people that do the same thing and speak highly of it, then that validates what you're doing. The reason we call this the false consensus effect is that people don't all think the same way. Everyone has different thoughts, individual values, and unique understandings. It's also what makes the world an interesting place to live in. Can you imagine what our social culture would be like if everyone agreed on everything? If everyone liked exactly the same things? It would sure make marketing easy, that's for sure. Political debates would be a thing of the past. Facebook and Instagram wouldn't need likes. In our horse world, we can observe the false consensus effect in a few different scenarios. Let's take a look at them. Example of false consensus effect number one. A belief that the horse thinks as you do and shares the same values. Let's start off by stating the obvious. Not only is the horse a different species, but he or she has significantly less cognitive ability than you. The horse's lack of human cognitive ability, for one, means that they are incapable of making abstract logical associations. Here's an example. Walking through a river and walking through a puddle are the same thing because they're both water, right? And there's many other things if you take the time to think about it. Lacking an understanding of horse psychology, and let's be honest, nobody teaches it. Well, maybe at Amazing Horse Country we do. But the false consensus effect will cause us to project our own values, opinions, and beliefs on the horse. Because they're radically different and don't think the way we do, the way we make sense of their actions is to use ourselves as the comparison. You'll know when this is occurring because you'll hear phrases like, my horse is misbehaving, or my horse doesn't respect me, or my horse is acting fussy, or my horse is regressing. Because if it were a human being doing those things, that's what we'd think about it. But honestly, that's no different than hearing someone say, my car hates me. Every time I drive it, it breaks down. And we refer to this as personification. That means we're subconsciously projecting human qualities to a non-human object or animal in an attempt to explain what they're doing. We sometimes personify when we seek an understanding of what we see, but we lack the knowledge to explain it. And it's critical as horse people that we overcome this, because it prohibits us from advancing our knowledge and skills. Let's use our alien planet scenario again. At some point during the day, all the aliens walk into a building. You follow them. You watch as, in turn, each alien takes a cup of what appears to be battery acid and pours it on their head. Obviously, they love this. But your belief is that acid will eat right through your scalp. So you hesitate and don't pick up a cup. But the lead alien is outraged and whacks you with a stick. Clearly, you are misbehaving. Clearly, you are being disrespectful. Now, compare this to asking a horse to walk through an obstacle that they're scared of. They might think they're going to die. 
With this new understanding, though, how will you handle it? Well, we certainly won't get angry at the horse for not doing what we wanted. Instead, we're going to put on our responsible leader hat and work through the issue in a positive way to create success for both our horse and us. Here are a few thoughts. Before reacting, let's take a moment to think about what happened. And, using knowledge of how a horse thinks and acts, understand why it happened. We'll assess our horse. What does he or she need? Clarity in instruction or leadership? Freedom from brace? Athletic development? The ability to release to pressure? We'll then work with our horse to provide those things. And here's the best part. We'll watch as what we used to think of as behavior problems and disrespect quickly disappear. We now experience a greater trust and a better positive relationship with our horse. And we can be proud of ourselves and proud of our horse. Here's another example of the false consensus effect in the horse world. Group mentality. If you ride a specific discipline, ride with the same group of friends, or honor a specific clinician or trainer that promotes certain methods or styles, you'll likely adopt their practices. That's not wrong at all. In fact, a large part of learning is modeling others. And let's face it, when we start off in the horse world, we know nothing. But we want to know something, right? What we do sometimes is mimic others and rationalize, or seek rationalization of, why others are doing what they do. As we gain knowledge, we might not agree or no longer agree with those actions anymore. We'll develop our own style that more closely aligns with our personal values and beliefs. We can all look back through our mental history at practices and methods that we'd never engage in today. Be honest here. We all have a story of something we did in our past that we're not necessarily proud of. But at the time we did it, we were able to rationalize our actions. We thought our actions were justifiable, but now we, quote unquote, know better. It's part of learning, and it's part of being human, and we all go through it. Here's a third example of the false consensus effect in the horse world. When confronted with evidence that a consensus does not exist, we often assume the horse, or person for that matter, is defective in some way. That might sound a little harsh, but I can guarantee you'll be intimately familiar with this one. My horse isn't taking the right lead. I'd better call an equine body worker. Or, my horse used to be doing, insert awesome thing your horse did here, but now she isn't. It's back to the trainer, I guess. Our first presumption, because we're using our own bodies and our own values as a reference, is that something is wrong or something is out. That's only a fraction of the reality of possibilities, but when we don't have an understanding of how the horse's mind and body works, and more importantly, how they work together, we have nothing else to go on. We make presumptions using our understanding of humans as a basis of comparison. But here's the kicker. Because the horse is not you, and moreover, not even human, the comparison has no validity. I was once working with a client that had this concern. My horse side passes to the right fine, 
but when I pressure her to side pass to the left, she crow hops. What's wrong with her? Honestly, that's a great question. And kudos to my client for seeking help with this. It's what I'm here for. First of all, a horse having more difficulty with pressure on one side is almost a given. Just like us, we're more comfortable on one side than the other. So let's look at how the mental and physical pieces tie together here. If the mare is having trouble with pressure on her right side, which would be the case when we're asking for a side pass to the left, then when the pressure is applied, her response will be to brace. That means her mental tension has led to physical tension and muscles that need to be loose in order to move are now tight. With tension in her back, she may be physically unable to move her legs as intended. Applying more pressure will cause her to brace more, making it even harder. Eventually, if more pressure is added, she will do something, and that something might be buck. So, what is the solution in this case? Well, we showed her how to release to pressure, that is, to let go of muscular and mental tension as a response of our leadership. Then, she was able to soften and yield to pressure, particularly on the right side, which took more work. The owner and I discussed her mare's body and what has to happen biomechanically in order to perform the maneuver. And those biomechanic movements are all about balance and where the horse transfers mass. We broke the exercise down into specific progressions and worked on them individually. Release in forward motion, adding pressure to release on the right side, and moving the front and hind independently. Sounds like a long-term process, doesn't it? Well, it wasn't. That work was accomplished in one session. And now, armed with the knowledge and its practical application, this horse and her owner have never had the problem again. Likely, she'll never have this problem with any horse she works with in the future either, because she now has an understanding that she didn't have before. It's a win-win. So, how do we avoid the treacherous false consensus effect? How do we avoid being abducted by aliens, for that matter? Well, I can't comment on the alien part, but in a nutshell, we learn how our horses think and how their bodies work. With that knowledge, we no longer have to guess about why a horse is doing what he or she is doing. We don't defer to the false consensus effect. And then we can toss out misunderstandings. We can say goodbye to personification and anthropomorphism and use our new knowledge to build experience which allows us to advance in our success. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. Why not join us? Become a patron and a member of Amazing Horse Country. We'd be glad to have you. Membership levels include early access to podcasts, our member-only forum, lots of Amazing Horse Country swag, participation in our live webinars, and even one-on-one -on -one training with me, Scott Phillips. Membership plans start for as little as $5 Canadian per month, and those go a long way to helping us provide podcasts, videos, and more for all you fantastic horse people. Give it some thought. Again, we'd love to have you join us. Just head to AmazingHorseCountry.com backslash membership. Even with a basic free membership, 
you can register for our amazing clinics and webinars, watch training videos, engage in our articles, share your horse stories, and much more. You'll find it all at AmazingHorseCountry.com. Oh, before you go, why not take a couple seconds and give us a five-star rating on whatever podcatcher you're using? We'd love your feedback. Until next time, my friends, happy trails.